I'm here today with Rich and Ralph Brandt. How how are you guys? One in Florida, one in Illinois. Is that right? Yeah, we're doing good. I'm probably a little warmer because I'm the one in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Rich. Yeah. And Ralph? It's pouring rain in Chicago and a little chilly, but uh, we're holding our own. Okay. Well, thanks both for dialing in. Really appreciate it. And your guys work a lot around the subject of diversity and inclusion, which is something that comes up a lot in learning and development in a number of different ways. First, Firstly, sometimes we get asked to actually train people on things like diversity and inclusion. But often in our kind of consultancy work, these issues just come up in a, in a sort of less training way, but just in a sort of general workplace sense. So it's a, it, I think it's a fascinating topic myself, and it's also one that's quite controversial. So I kind of quite like touching on things like that. So what made you guys specialize in that? Why this topic? Yeah, you know, I, I think that it's like most things in life. We sort of fell into it a little bit. You know, r believe it or not, Rich and I were in ministry a long time ago. I mean, probably 30 years ago or more. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And um, oh, this podcast is going to go on forever. This is so interesting. OK, let's talk about diversity uh, inclusion first and then we're going <laughs> Okay. And we can go into that you one. Skip that. <laughs> but 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 it, but it, in some ways, it, it, the reason we got into this is because we realized we needed to be more inclusive. You know, we're two white guys that are twins, and we were born in 1956, before civil rights, before the women's movement. You know, before gay rights, and and I think our journey has been one of becoming more open-minded and more accepting. And so it, it, it actually became sort of a natural place, but, but it was also a journey for us. I think the other thing is that in, the truth is that fairness in the systems, like in the workplace or in society, that perpetuate discrimination for women and people of color won't really change until the majority, the white males, become advocates. So when you think about it, it was really men that gave women the right to vote, as crazy as that sounds. Obviously, it was based on the protests and uh, activism of women. And the same is true in the United States. White people ended uh, segregation because of the protests. But it's the majority that really need the most help. And so I think what Ralph and I try to do when we do our training is to share our story in one sense and kind of you know, we, we're kind of walking examples that, that changing bias is possible. That's that's really interesting. And of course, we should acknowledge that we are three middle-aged white guys <laughs> sitting around talking about this. It's, but we can't help that. That's who we are. And um, But that's fascinating. Where did you two grow up then? In Chicago. So, you know, Rich moved away to get warmer, but uh, our roots are here in the Midwest and you know, I don't think our families were particularly prejudiced, but they weren't particularly inclusive either. I mean, to us, inclusion is something you have to work at. And um, so to, to answer what I think was your question initially, John, for us, training people on this topic is trying to figure out and identify what are the behaviors that we need to get better at, um, like networking with people who are different instead of just what we call flocking with people like ourselves, you know, you, and, and getting comfortable and being open-minded to see someone else's perspective. Well, I think that's the really interesting side of this. It's not as obvious as having a, a clear prejudice, which most of us would feel uncomfortable thinking we had, I guess. It's a lot more subtle than that, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes I think we confuse, you know, bias with discrimination. And 
most people, I think, if they don't discriminate, if they're not actively bigoted, they assume that that means that I'm not a racist or I'm not sexist. But the truth is, is that until we make changes in terms of specific behaviors that perpetuate the unfairness, then we're contributing sometimes by default. And so our, our goal is to try and raise awareness to the behaviors that keep contributing to a system that's unfair because it's most bias is unconscious. Of course, that's pretty popular now to talk about unconscious bias, but I think a lot of people don't know what that means. So what we try to do is to say there are certain behavior patterns that we've gotten used to, all of us. It's not just white men. It's just that white men are the ones in power in in most organizations, but there are certain patterns of behavior we get used to that that are actually sustaining the bias. And that's what we try to point out, are like five behaviors in particular that are problematic and how to change them. Well, that's great. We'll, we'll get on to that. And I think that's a really interesting distinction. You said like, if there's no, if you don't feel you're actively bigoted, therefore you don't, you're not biased, which of course is, is that kind of uh, assumption, I guess, that we tend to make. And also, I think it links to it links to things like instincts that a lot of us rely on our instincts, especially with decision making around things like recruitment. And that's something that I've always been slightly wary of. And that comes into things like this as well. When you were saying about flocking, where do you think a role? Where, where do you think instincts come into this? Well, I, I think we're actually doing some interesting studies with uh, we're in the midst of a study right now, so I can't really reveal where it is, but it's a very prominent university here in the States. And we're looking at how human beings are wired up. And so instinctually, we tend to be afraid of things that we perceive as different. And the operative word is perceive. So if we see someone with a brow ring and tattoos as different, it it registers as a threat in our brain and it creates cortisol, you know, the stress hormone. And I think that's why people get irrational and sometimes you know, emotional about differences. And so, unfortunately, there is something instinctually in us. Even now with the COVID crisis, John, I don't know what it's like where you're at, but, you know, people go into stores and they're hunkered down and they're fighting for the last roll of toilet paper because, you know, we, we there's a part of us as human beings that's tribal and territorial. So to a certain extent, we kind of have to overcome those instincts, like you said, with interviewing or other things that we do. And the way we do that is not by talking about it. We think inclusion is something you do. So I have a son-in-law who's African-American. You know, getting comfortable with someone who's different, you no longer see them as a threat. You see them as your family, right? And that's how I think we're trying to kind of approach this topic. Yeah, you mentioned the pandemic there. And let's just touch on that because I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace, how do you think the current pandemic impacts that? And how does that impact our efforts in the workplace? What's interesting is that the opposite of inclusion is isolation. <laughs> and, right. and that's really, so what's, what's been forced on us right now is socialized isolation. So I think that it's, it's kind of stymied a lot of the diversity efforts in most organizations. And what we've tried to do is to use virtual experiences like social media, and particularly uh, for us, we use you know the platform of Zoom meetings where we continue to have 
dialogue around diversity, put people in breakout groups where they can interact with people of a different religious faith or different race, different gender. So what's nice is we live in a day and age of social media. So just because we can't physically be present, you know, we, I think we can continue the efforts through using social media intelligently. I don't know if this has happened for you and, and your friends, um, you know, in Europe, but for us, we've, connected with family more through social media than we did prior to this. And so I think it's a matter of just kind of switching mediums. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've connected a lot more with with family, with friends. Um, uh, I I guess part of it is having more time, but just because people are making that effort to reach out more. So even though I'm physically isolated and I don't have the job of going down to wrestle with the my neighbors for the last toilet roll, so (laughs) (laughs) don't even get that interaction. But I actually don't feel it. Maybe there's a hunger. You know, we found that our training sessions virtually have been more dynamic and more engaging than they were in person. Right. I don't yeah. know if it's because of the hunger or the fact that, you know, there's in these breakout sessions virtually, you're just with two or three people. But it's we found that it's it's created a whole new dynamic. That's a really good point. Yeah, because we got we got rec- record numbers on a webinar. Um, earlier today so that perhaps might explain that yeah yeah well i was going to say that this is what you do with your podcasts and we're doing it now right we're connecting virtually and and we feel connected i mean we don't know you but but we we're getting to know you and it, it, it is thousands of miles away through technology which is cool but one thing i wanted to point out was the way this COVID crisis works, it kind of highlights the whole issue of diversity and inclusion because the people who are most disadvantaged are the ones who are most impacted right now. And that's what happens in life generally. It's just coming to the forefront. You know, those who are older, those who are maybe different than others in their community, those that, you know, are people of color, have socioeconomic challenges, they're clearly the ones being most impacted. So we're trying to have individuals and businesses become more conscious of including instead of hoarding, right? You know, reach out to people, help those people in your neighborhood that are older, help those people in your organization that are feeling uh, disconnected so that we can maintain even in the midst of this when we really need to. I just want to pick up on something you said earlier, which I thought was really important because you said that inclusion isn't just about knowing, it's about doing. And then you talked about some behaviors that sit under that. Can we break open that and talk about what behaviors there are Maybe thinking not just virtually, but just just generally. What are those behaviors that really help inclusion? We, in our course that we deliver for organizations, we've identified five. Five behaviors that are non-inclusive. It begins with what we call flocking, this in-group, out-group thing where we just gravitate toward people who are like us. And then it elevates to what we call cultural naivete, where people, you know, the ignorance that we have about other culture groups cause us to say and do things that are offensive. And then it kind of hardens into what we call monoculturalism, thinking there's one way to do things and, you know, we need other people to conform. And then eventually it gets to unconscious bias. So what we've done is we've created five positive behaviors that are kind of like the antidote. So instead of flocking, we teach people how to actively network, to build relationships with people. We talk about the need to be culturally aware or sensitive to understand people's cultural norms. We talk about being 
well, it's the opposite of monoculturalism. We call it calibration. It's a willingness to kind of adjust and kind of meet people in the middle in terms of their particular way of doing things. And Ralph, in particular, in his work that he's done with this university he mentioned, has kind of come up with a, a great strategy in terms of follow-up practices where people for a couple of months uh, after the training session are asked to commit to 20 minutes of actual activities that put these things into practice. And that's that's the doing part, right? So we tend to do training, and I know your specialty, John, is L&D. Most training, you just sit in a classroom and you learn information. But we're actually taking all of our programs. So, you know, we do programs on trust. We do programs on respect. And we're, we're trying to isolate the behaviors and then telling people what to do for a period of eight weeks so they, be, they begin to practice those things as opposed to just talking about them. The study you were talking about there, you were saying that it's, you know, it affects things like cortisol and stuff like that when you, when you are in those uncomfortable situations, when you see people that you perceive as different. So does this... You're saying this is actually affecting brain chemistry. It, it has that physical impact. Is that something that you're? Yep. Is that something that you're actually studying and measuring and looking at? It is. You know. So thankfully, we have a client that is a healthcare system that's right across the street from this university that is doing the research for us. And what we're doing is um, we're asking people to participate in the training that we do and do the follow-up practices to see if they really can change brain chemistry. So the way we're doing that, I don't want this to get too involved, but we're asking folks to go over to the university and interact with someone of a different race. They think they're mentoring them. We're really interested in how their brain chemistry is affected by interacting with someone of a different race. And in most cases, that raises cortisol levels. So then we're asking half of those people to then go through a training to learn the behaviors and spend eight weeks interacting with a partner who's of an opposite race. They're practicing inclusion. Then after those eight weeks, all the participants go back and get tested again. And what we expect is that those who've been doing it are going to have lower cortisol levels so that we can prove for the first time that we're aware of that training can change people if they do what they learn in the training. That's fascinating. So it is, yeah, it's, it's almost as simple as that, just actually spending that time with the person and that does actually impact your brain chemistry. Yeah, and there have been some studies that already indicate that, but we're, we're trying, you know how in training, and I know that's your field, people yeah. always ask you, can training really change people? The answer is sure. I mean, you can lose weight if you want to, you just have to do it, right? We'll talk about that afterwards. That's another topic, especially after this lockdown. <laughs> but anecdotally, I think all of us, well, I can't say all of us, most of us have personal examples where we maybe made a friend with someone who was gay, and that changed the way we felt about the LGBT community in large. Or we made a, pers a, a friendship with someone who's a, a different race, and it changes how we feel about that entire race. So, you know, that that's kind of the the doorway, I think, to comfortability with people who are different is relationship. And the, the positive brain chemistry, which I, you know, the university isn't measuring, but there's positive neurochemicals like oxytocin, the bonding chemical, or serotonin that also create a sense of well-being. So we, we not only lower our stress, but we begin to feel comfortable and bond with people who are different. 
Well, I'm going to ask you now as somebody, I'm a manager as well as a trainer, an L&D person, I'm also a manager. So what can I do to make sure that I'm more de- inclusive? Yeah, that's a great question, John. And and if people would just ask that question, I mean, right? I can't believe it's, it's like, the first time I've asked it, actually, in my entire life. Uh, well, <laughs> well, so here's what we tell people. Think about your team. You know, what differences do you see? Who's probably the most included? Who's the least included? And being inclusive is noticing this person probably doesn't feel as connected and and you need to be intentional and deliberate to to manage that and um so these behaviors that rich has mentioned networking is just you know get together with them and again virtually now because we're not meeting in in conference rooms but you know reach out text them uh email them set up a zoom meeting and we we think first and foremost it's just creating a rapport you know but but then as as rich pointed out you kind of move from making a connection to trying to kind of see how they see things and and here's something interesting there's also been studies i'm sure you've probably heard of this but you get better solutions when you invite a diverse group of people to try to solve them you know if you surround yourself with people like you they're all going to think like you do and you're not going to come up with new ideas so there's a lot of innovation as we get other people's perspectives too. I was going to ask you that question actually because I think I, I'm kind of sold on the idea of diversity because it fits what I want to be true so I'm quite happy I'm, I, I just believe it automatically but some people do challenge that and do say that actually diversity can create silos it can create poor communication uh, so I'm just trying to think of what the, some of the arguments that I've heard against diversity but it's around that it's around that having that lack of communication that the silos the people feeling excluded despite the fact that they're physically there as a kind of token whatever category well and that's the difference between diversity and inclusion you know you can have diversity and it may not help but that's because you don't have inclusion so what we tell people diversity without inclusion is kind of like owning workout equipment and not using it you know you're not going to get in shape <laughs> if you thing. own workout equipment and we yeah we've we've all done that right we these are really something. harsh words rich you're, uh... <laughs> we we you're buy a, you know, a ro- we buy a rowing machine or a bowflex and we don't use it and that isn't the problem so having diversity by itself isn't going to change things. It's learning how to use the diversity, become comfortable with it. That's why it's necessary to ask the question that you did, John, which was really, you know, so insightful. What? How can I be more inclusive? It's, you know, most people, if you ask them, like if we would have asked you, do, do you think you're inclusive? You'd say, yeah, sure I am, because you believe in it. Sure, but yeah, believing yeah. in it, doesn't change things any more than believing that if we eat healthy and exercise, we'll get in shape. It, it is about doing something. And that's, we've kind of learned that, you know, the first 10 years of our business, we didn't approach it this way. And then the last 10 years, and particularly the last few years, we, we really realized we have to help people to get beyond the abstract and concepts to actually doing something practically. And that's when the brain chemistry changes, just like the body changes when we exercise. Well, and let me add something to to your question or your point where, you know, you talk about how sometimes diversity can make us siloed. You know, we believe you could have 10 white males working on a team and you'll still have fragmentation and silos. So, you know, because we've seen that, right? Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. So the siloing and and the fragmentation happen because... 
diversity is more than race or gender. You could be the same race, same gender, same age, and still not connect with people. Inclusion is this process of creating comfortability, creating connection, which is something you have to work at, you know. So looking at this now from an L&D point of view, I think there's there's two kind of ways I want to go in here. So first of all, I will ask if I'm talking to somebody uh, at a kind of more consultant level. So I might be advising them on inclusion. I might be helping them think through the way that their issues they may be having in their team. What are the key points that I need to be aware of, need to be thinking of when I'm advising on things like diversity and inclusion? Well, I think, you know, for us, the the core concerns from the point of the organization that I think indicate the levels of inclusion are things like retention, employee engagement, innovation, productivity, morale. You know, so when, when people say to us, do you have any trainings that you know, help with retention. We're like, yeah, it's called inclusion. <laughs> so, called so treating people well, right? Because when people feel like you're connecting with them, and this has been shown in all kinds of research with relationships between managers and employees, they're engaged. It's 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 that relationship that makes the difference. It's it's more important than pay or benefits or you know hours and that sort of thing. It's it's really about whether I feel socially accepted and respected and appreciated by the person I work for and the team I'm a part of. But the the indicators are are the other issues that corporations are concerned about. And customer satisfaction is a part of it too, because if you don't know how to be inclusive in how you deal with customers, you're going to lose customers. I have a slight issue with that, and it's not really disagreeing with you exactly. It's more, one problem I have with retention as a measure is if your retention scores are pretty good and you have pretty low staff turnover, that isn't necessarily an indicator that things are okay. A lot so of yes. true. And I, I mean, I work in an international environment and it very much depends on where you are. In some environments, there's no way people are going to leave a steady job. It doesn't matter how bad you treat them. Depends on if they have options. And, exactly. And, you know, so you're, you're right in that sense. By itself, isolated by itself, it isn't, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing well because you have low exactly. retention. Yeah. But there well, might think- be other indicators, you know. I think Rich mentioned uh, engagement because, you know, that's what you really want. Okay, so retention is one measure, but engagement is another measure. And and so is productivity. So is innovation, contribution. And, you know, those are the kinds of things when we consult with a client, we're, we're really trying to look at how can we get people more included so that you can increase the performance of your team you can increase the loyalty with your customer base. You know, those are the outcomes that everybody wants. And the other thing that's important, John, I think, is making sure that you know when you collect data internally in an organization that you look at, is our retention rate different for women or for millennials or for people of color? We had one auto company we did work with in the past that their retention rate overall was 5% or something like that, or turnover. Their turnover was 5%. But when they isolated it to younger people, millennials, it was 50%. So it's, you, know, you can look at a general statistic and think you're doing well, but then you have to ask yourself, what does it look like when we just isolate women or we just isolate millennials, et cetera? That's a really interesting point. Yeah, chopping it up like that. And I guess you can benchmark as well. Right. Um, That's you right. Know, across your industry and across uh, various other measures as well. 
If I'm skeptical about this, though, and you've mentioned this already around kind of innovative thinking and, and having different points of view, that this comes back to this point about diversity isn't just a case of gender or, or race or things like that, because we, we may not think particularly different if we come from the same cultural background. So that certain types of diversity wouldn't necessarily have a massive impact on things like innovative thinking. Or it may be that innovative thinking isn't particularly important to me. I just need people to just do their jobs and run an operation. Why should I bother with <laughs> diversity? Well, you know, I think the whole issue is if you're in business and interested in improving, right, getting better at what you do, you know, call it innovation, call it whatever you want. I think that's the, the kind of client we're looking for. I'm sure there are people who really don't care whether they get any better. But, you know, I think in most in most business communities, if if you're not getting better, you're probably falling behind. And so for us, the idea is you're paying these people. Why not get them to contribute because they have something to offer? Why not make their brains light up so they can think more clearly when they're doing whatever job they're doing? Because those healthy brain chemicals that Rich described, they also, the studies show that people are not only more sociable when those healthy brain chemicals are active, but they're, they're more engaged, they're more innovative, they're 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 more productive all the things that most businesses would want yeah i mean obviously i'm playing devil's advocate to some extent um but i, I have heard people say that and i'm thinking here about different types of personality i guess or different types of work styles so a much subtler form of diversity than, than something as clear as a color or a gender is i actually just need people that are like this because i just need people to process that or do the other i don't need other types of personality is that a valid point? First of all, we've heard that too. So, you, you know, a little affirmation for you. We, we hear that all the time. There's certain, and usually they're the, the, the resistors within the organization, the ones that complain about the fact that their employees have a bad attitude and so on. And, yeah, and exactly. They don't recognize that it, it might be related to the way they're treating their employees. But even if you look at personality types, I think most people that have any familiarity with that recognize that when you have a balance of someone who's analytical and someone who's more, you know, has the logistical skills and someone who has tactical skills and someone who has diplomatic skills, it's the combination of all four of those that are going to provide balance. Otherwise, you're likely to kind of go off in, you know, uh, in one direction and 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 miss something important. So, you know, there have been organizations that, you know, just, you know, are strictly thinking in terms of what's logical and data, and they forget the emotional element, for instance, and they lose customers because people buy things emotionally. So you need someone that has a personality type that is a little stronger in terms of understanding uh, emotions and and the people side of business. So I think, you know, any healthy study recognizes that need for the full spectrum of personality types. And I think generations, it's the same thing. You know, younger generations are better at technology. Older generations maybe have experience but you put that together and you have something better than just one or the other did you want to add anything ralph i know because when i when i asked that question at your face just <laughs> well it's, yeah it's a picture yeah, I, I was actually i was looking for uh, an article that i had just printed uh, there's a there's a gentleman named scott page oh i know him yeah 
Yeah, he's the head of uh, the uh, Center for Complexity Science at the University of Michigan. So he he does diversity from a totally different perspective. He's not interested. Well, I shouldn't say he's not interested, but his focus is not like ours. It's not about social diversity or diversity in the workplace. He he he's a scientist. He's a mathematician, and he he looks at how problems are solved and. And his point is that, yes, you do want different personalities. You do want different individuals because a person who thinks differently. So it's really kind of a diversity of thought, which which he feels is totally informed by your gender and your race and your age and, and all the other things. This is how you do your best work, because he's done studies, that, again, very scientific. He's way above my pay grade because he's a mathematician, but he, he's got some YouTube clips and, and some articles that he, he's written more for lay people like me. And, you, and it really becomes obvious that if you want to improve, if you want to do efficient work and, and productive work, you want to get more people involved that are, that are not all the same. Is he the guy who said that in uh, diverse organizations, not only does the organization do better, but actually the individuals perform better i think some of his studies i think it was him does that sound familiar yeah it does sound familiar and and that's true too i mean because when our voice is heard we we suddenly again we're doing the research on the brain chemistry your brain chemistry literally changes when you feel valued, when you feel affirmed, you know, it's like w when you connect with someone, like, I, I don't know, I hope that I'm not assuming anything, but there's a connection that I can feel with you and the way you think. When that happens, you, you, you kind of generate ideas from one another. And I'm sure you've had guests, I hope not recently, but, you know, you're just not feeling it and, and it, your brain goes dark, you know, it's, it's not the same. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to mention any names, obviously, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> There, there's this particular state of mind that they've identified called flow. And that's when th there's kind of this cocktail of neurochemicals in your brain. Athletes, you know, it, when there's just seconds left in a game or world-class musicians and so forth can kind of put themselves in the state of mind. But they say you're 500% more productive in a state of flow. So the brain chemistry makes a major difference. I mean, what would companies pay if you could be 500% more productive? Of course, that's the extreme, but even 20% more productive, I think, you know, if they had a pill where you could give your employees that make them 20% more productive, there isn't a company out there that wouldn't pay for it. And yet it's as simple as learning how to change the dynamics of relationship, particularly between supervisors and employees that does in fact make this change in in neurochemistry yeah i think the the scott page thing if it is scott page what he was saying was that because individuals are in that diverse organization they have more confidence to speak up they feel more empowered to speak up and and therefore they, they actually individually perform better which is why the organizations perform better but i found that a very interesting and compelling argument because i kind of just thought okay the organization performs better but then there was this kind of what's in it for me thing. Hang on, I'm going to perform better as well. And that to me was, uh, <laughs> sure. was, was really, uh, really interesting thought, which I, kind of, I suppose is kind of obvious because how else is the organization performing? It must be a sum of the individuals, of course, but it just hadn't occurred to me until I heard him say so. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things we do in these virtual trainings that we've been doing, when we put people into a breakout 
group, we just asked them to share a boss or supervisor that they worked with that lit up their brain. And everybody can think of one that, you know, gosh, when I worked for this person, I was, I was you know, really uh, at my very best. And I came to work anxious and motivated and, you know, went above and beyond. And then we say, well, talk about somebody who turned your brain off. And it's like, I, I avoided them. I didn't want to go to work. You know, it was just constant tension. So we all have experienced, which I think is what you're describing with the Scott Page reference. Not only does the organization benefit, but the people benefit because they, they look forward to working and and it's meaningful for them. Yeah, I found that a really powerful point. And, you know, as you say, the more you can get people into flow and things like that, of course, that's great as well. I was going to risk saying the name of the psychologist who identified flow, but I bottled out in the middle. I thought, I'm just going to skate past this quickly. Do you want to risk it? Anybody? No, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to risk it. It's such such a difficult name to pronounce. If you're American, bet, yeah. Yeah. Well, or British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or British, definitely, yeah. I, you also touched on something I really wanted to get to there, which was around the, the difference you said about the relationships between supervisor and or you know, manager or supervisor with other members of the team. Because I think diversity it, or inclusion, um, I think you call it connecting, don't you? That's your sort of yes, shorthand word, don't do. you? Yeah. This right. connecting principle. That's kind of easier when it's me and you and we're having a conversation that we want to have or it's okay with me and my peers. But if my problem is with my manager, or my manager's problem is with me, the cost of the power dynamic comes into it. It's then not a simple case of, you know, you're okay, I'm okay. Suddenly it's the case of, I'm the boss, so I'm more okay than you are. How do you kind <laughs> of deal with those kind of dynamics when, you talk, when you're consulting with teams? Yeah, those are difficult because, you know, if I'm not feeling included it may be hard for me to tell my boss or supervisor it's you. But one of the things that we talk about in the, in the course that we do is is the skill of creating conversation that's comfortable, right? So, you know, if I tell you I think you're excluding me and, and you're my boss, uh, there's going to be ramifications. So part of it is is developing rapport and comfortability and, and really kind of exploring what what their issues might be. So, you know, going at it from, I'd really like to do my best work for you. And, and I, I sense that, you know, maybe that's not happening. Is, the, is there something I could do? In other words, you don't put it on the boss or supervisor by telling them what a jerk they are. You're really just kind of finding out, you know, are there things that I could do? And you're trying to get some information that might help you to connect. So we do have some strategies, but that's a tough one, John, no question. And as an L&D person, which I know is your specialty, John, I think this is the the role that L&D can play in providing training to to try and set standards as an organizational culture. So, you know, it gives people a forum to be able to discuss what's hard to discuss one-on-one, -on -one, and it puts managers on notice that, hey, how you treat people is important. So, I think you're 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 helping those individuals who find it because we've all had impossible managers. I think, you know, because I'll get that on a side conversation from attendees like I have a manager who's impossible and I don't try to argue that because I've had those kind of managers, too. But that's why training is so important, because it provides opportunities for the organization as a whole to send a message to those kinds of managers that we want to change that. 
And obviously, the only organizations that really make it work is when it comes down from the top and people are held accountable for violating those core values like be inclusive. Somebody has to be, you know, unfortunately, the police officer kind of intervening and saying, hey, we've really been getting a lot of complaints about your leadership. But if that doesn't happen, you know, it does it does create challenges for individual employees. Well, I think that leads us on to the last bit that I really wanted to kind of cover, which is if I'm actually doing training now on issues like connecting, inclusion, diversity, what are the key objectives that I'm going to have with that training? What are the key things I'm going to be trying to achieve? Well, I think for us, we have to be eminently practical. Folks are busy. They're distracted, especially now. So what we try to do is... is give them some ideas on what they can do, which is what you asked. You know, you said you're a manager of people and, you know, maybe you've never really asked the question, how inclusive am I? What would I do to be more inclusive? So when we have these online platforms to train people, the, the emphasis is on what is it we need to do, right? Because like, like we said at the beginning, inclusion is a practice. And so as a manager, you you kind of you look at the landscape and ask who could i connect better with right just pick one person you know you you may not be able to get them all but who do i need to connect better with and one thing that you just pointed out that we tell people don't go after the most difficult person to to practice this with right you know find somebody that is 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 maybe a little less included and and hone your skills uh, with that individual but but we really try to keep the whole thing practical so that people leave and then we give them templates after the course to, to guide them to, you know, this is what we can do on week one. These are some questions you can ask. It, we really have kind of tried to provide all the tools possible. So a lot of it's around, as you say, very practical bits about having those conversations and building relationships. That's how you focus your the sort of L&D intervention. Completely. You know, it, it's, you know, we feel like it, the changes only take place when you know, you you start to interact with people who are different than you are. So the eight weeks, you know, there's like little assignments. We try not to burden people, so we keep it relatively small in nature, maybe, you know, 10, 20 minutes. But it's it's really in um, these eight weeks that, that the changes really take place. You know, the, we, we've learned after 20 years that you can't change someone through one training session. Yeah. It it is We've it is really that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the relationships that that are going to rid people of bias. So you know, we feel like we've kind of made a significant turn in how we approach L&D by just coming upon that and we did it by listening to our clients. You know, the feedback was consistently, well what do we do after the training? And we finally paid enough attention to that. And fortuitously, we had this opportunity kind of come to us where we were working with a university and a hospital across the street. And, you know, someone in the the neuroscience department was interested in this whole thing. And it all just kind of came together. Oh, and and let me say, John, to to kind of reinforce what Rich just said, not only can you not change people in a training, uh, you can begin to change them in eight weeks. But it needs to be a lifelong practice. You're not done after eight weeks. It's like this is something that we need to do repeatedly as a manager, as a leader, as a human being. So, you know, the eight weeks is just getting started. But I think we all know 
even now, like like we were saying about connecting with our families and friends virtually, if you just take 20 minutes a week and reach out to an individual, in eight weeks, there's going to be a better rapport, better communication, better comfortability. That's obvious. It's just 20 minutes a week. So that's just a starting point, but it needs to be kind of a lifelong thing after that when you see the benefit oh my gosh, I mean, this turned an employee around or from a customer point of view, it really helped to to create more opportunities. And if I can just give a personal testimony, it kind of goes back to where we started, like how are two white guys doing in diversity training? How, they, how do we end up in this space? My own life, and Ralph would say the same thing, has changed because of doing this. So if you would have seen me 20 years ago, I was a white guy with white male friends, you know, and really had very little interest or concern about most other identity groups. Today, one of my best friends is black. One of my wife and I's best couple friends are, are, are two lesbians, two, two of my best intellectual friends. One's a Buddhist, one's an atheist. I come from a Christian background, and I'm not the same person anymore. I don't see the world the way I did. And that's one of the things that give Ralph and I the passion to do what we do, is because we've seen our own biases change. And not only do we feel more comfortable with people who are different, but we see the world differently, and I think in a much healthier, broader way. I think that's a really nice example and my question now feels completely facile in comparison. <laughs> so I was just trying to think of something better to say. Um, but, but I think it's... Well, you know, one thing, I, I'm sorry, John, I don't mean to interrupt, but I was thinking when Rich just said that, people need to understand, too, that being inclusive doesn't have to change your identity. You know, we think it threatens us, like we can't be Christian anymore or we can't be a white guy anymore. It, it's just giving people space to be who they are, too, and it doesn't have to diminish who we are. It might add to who we are, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think I think you know that I I come at this from from a position where this very much chimes with my values and and my beliefs as well. So I, I kind of, as I said earlier, perhaps slightly jokingly, but I I genuinely just kind of accept all this stuff because I think it's true. But you do come against people that are slightly skeptical about these things, and that's why I think it's really interesting that your approach to the learning and development person's role, the trainer's role in this isn't to convince people of a particular kind of position. It's actually just to get people talking and get people building relationships and getting people to bother doing that for that to become a habit. And that's that's and, a very different approach than I've seen before to diversity and than I've taken in diversity before. I've done quite a bit of training on unconscious bias and I loved it. I think it's a fascinating subject, but it's very much about educating people at different heuristics and biases and stuff like that and talking through some examples and we can have a lot of fun doing it but we're not the only person that's actually changed from the 20 or 30 sessions i've done on that is me because i've done it 20 or 30 times and it takes that many times mm. nobody else has mm. they've all just thought oh that was interesting and carried on as before <laughs> um, so i think well, you the, know the key really is that over time and having those conversations yeah and i bet if if you looked at your brain chemistry uh, when you're around people that are different it, it, wouldn't it be great if we could all be on brain scans all day we could find <laughs> out you know who's more comfortable but you probably are there's no doubt about it and and that's probably why you do the work that you do too but but i think that we are trying to prove it right i mean we have been harassed with questions by skeptics and i think we're trying to say scientifically we can show your brain is different 
when you connect with all people. Now, if you're not interested in that, that's fine. Have a lot of customers that, you know, have uh, cortisol spikes when they see you. Have a lot of coworkers who, you know, don't do their best work. If that's what you're into, don't bother with this. But the effort to include and to connect, we believe, can have a proven payoff. And, you know, uh, you, you know that instinctively, but I think a lot of folks have to be convinced. Well, I, I, I can't better that as an ending for this discussion. So I uh, I will cease my facile questions um, and just say, <laughs> listen, uh, it's been really, really interesting talking to you. And I think we could talk for a lot, lot longer. Um, and I'm really interested to hear about your, your past in the ministry as well. I think that's such a fascinating journey because it's something. And, and the reason I find that so fascinating with it is because it's so different from my own background having grown up in a very different circumstances of, you know, where religion was just not an important thing whatsoever. I always find that very fascinating when people have chosen that path. And what's great is is if you can dialogue, like if you have a place, a safe place to dialogue, because most people can't, especially religion. You know, yeah. you, you people are either so convinced of their beliefs that, you know, they're hardened or people are so convinced in their unbelief that they're hardened. But to be able to talk and say, John, tell me why you see it the way you do. Oh, and Rich, I'd be interested, why do you see it the way you do? And what happens, the convergence of these two different mindsets, I think over time, it helps both parties to be able to see certain things that maybe previously they've been missing. So I find, you know, maybe some other time we'll have to have that discussion because my discussions with my Buddhist and atheist friend is my favorite my favorite friendship, I think, because we are changing each other so much because it's completely different worldviews and it helps us to get out of our myopia in a sense. Absolutely. And I think having those discussions really helps you think through what you really genuinely do believe and understand. And Exactly. And, you know, if you like most of us kind of want to be right about stuff. And the only way you can be right about stuff is putting it out there into the sunshine and letting it uh, be exposed and, and kicked about a bit. And if it survives that, then you probably are right. That's yeah. right. Well, you know, let me just say we're grateful for the opportunity, John, to, to connect with you and the work that you do, because the world's so divided. And we need to give folks uh, hope and inspiration that we can be better than this if we kind of unite and stand together and you know, I have a sense that's what you're all about, and uh, it, it really has been a pleasure to meet you, even if it's just virtually for now. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Take good care. Mm -hmm.